Welcome to the Preacher Podcast, where we believe that preaching should be biblical. And for it to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. We talk to preachers about, well, preaching. Whether you have preached one sermon or 1,000, we're here to serve those who want to preach better. I'm your host, Alan Stanley. Hey everyone, coming up is the second part of the conversation I had with Daryl Bock on Preaching the Gospels. I hope you enjoy. This is taking us into quite a big area, I know, but can we look at the, can we think about the theme of the gospel and this kind of doubles back to what we've been talking about in terms of the kingdom, but... Um, I'm, t- I'm talking about the gospel in terms of the good news um, because we often will go to Paul uh, for the good news and yet um, I'm a big believer in moving with the scriptures, Old Testament, gospels, epistles. So you're moving forward and 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 I got this from you actually in terms of um, you used to talk to us about progressive revelation, and and you see things unfold. And Jesus comes and he preaches the good news of the kingdom, and that's something that we pick up in Isaiah fifty-two verse seven, for example. Uh, the good news, your God reigns, mm-hmm. and and I, I we see that when we get into Paul. When Romans one, he talks about um, the Son of God um, in power at the resurrection. We see it in First Corinthians fifteen. Jesus uh, reigns in the resurrection. We see it in Second Timothy two eight, where Paul talks about um, Jesus um, now raised, um, and he links it with David. and And so we see that if we move forward, but speak to a little bit, I guess to that idea of finding the gospel, at least if there's anything that you haven't said, finding the gospel in, in the gospels. Without- well, I've already suggested the elements um, when we think about the gospel. I, I like to give some people a simple starting point and then build. So, uh, and the simple starting point is the individual, when you think about it individualistically, the gospel is about a forgiveness of sins that allows us to be cleansed so that the Spirit of God can indwell us and we can have an ongoing relationship with the living God. That's actually what I'm asking God to do when I trust Him. Okay? I see that the way that I've lived my life has been dishonoring to you. I've come up short. I need you and what you can supply in order to live a life that is healthy spiritually and puts me back in contact with what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay, that that at its core, an individualistic level, is the gospel. But I'm not the only one getting saved. Okay, there are other people getting saved, and I'm connected to them. And I'm connected to them whether I think about them being kingdom brothers and sisters or fellow believers in Christ. However, you express that, I'm put in a new man. Okay, and that new man, that that entity, that whole entity has a corporate function, has a testimony as a community to God. Okay, and we're responsible. Not just for ourselves before God, but but our testimony matters 
for other fellow believers in how we conduct ourselves, et cetera, and how our communities conduct themselves. So there's that dimension, giving evidence to that corporate reconciliation that I've already talked about. So you've got an individual dimension, you've got a corporate dimension, you've got a cleansing and relational dimension that is the core and the dynamic of what makes it work. And then there's a direction that it's going. It's going in the direction towards peace. It's going to attraction of recognizing the people from every tribe and every nation will be a part. It, it goes in a direction of offering an invitation to people who need what it is that the gospel offers, all those things. And then there's the testimony that undergirds that, where my service and care for people, for my neighbor, even for enemies, loving them, so undergirds what I'm doing ethically that when I say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or however you present the gospel, um, there's evidence in the way I interact with people that I mean it. Mm. So what I'm hearing is when we when we see the good news being preached in the gospels and we apply that, it's it's not this singular idea that we sometimes uh, reduce it to, but it's a, it's a it's a broad theme encompassing all of those things that you've talked Salvation about. Salvation is cosmic. I mean, if you look at if you look at uh, the end of Romans eight, it involves the whole of creation. Creation's groaning for the redemption of the sons of God, and so. We, I think we, I think the, I, I often say this now that the gospel is much bigger than we think, and uh, uh, you know it's much grander, much broader, much deeper. It reaches, more, you know, it reaches the four corners of the earth, mm-hmm. and uh, and we tend to think of it, oh well, it's it's in my house. No, it 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 stretches out in all directions, and mm-hmm. once you realize that, some of the battles that we're in today about how we engage with a larger society, et cetera get reframed, really, in terms of how we think about those spaces. Uh, We don't wall ourselves off. We're committed to engagement in an engagement in a way that points to the why the people need the gospel. Uh, And that's that's what that's what the whole cultural engagement space that I'm in right now uh, and have been for the last decade. That's what it's designed to show. It's designed to present the gospel in a deeper, more consistent and comprehensive light to reflect what the gospel actually is. And in the midst of Jesus preaching the gospel, the good news, you've got um, all his his ethical demands, right? And which, which are summarizable in the great commandment. Okay, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I call it the ethical triangle because it involves a vertical relationship. Uh, with God and a horizontal relationship with others. I, I was with high school students two weeks ago and I was explaining this concept and I did, you know, I did my thing. I, I'm trying to get it into the screen here. Okay. And they said, what? Well, where's the triangle? I said, because when others connect to God, you complete the triangle um, and you have a place where righteousness functions. And so, and then I like to say the great commandment is great because it's great. It's at the top of the list. It's the most central uh, thing. And if you think about the Ten Commandments, they're actually structured the same way. There's my relationship to God, that's tablet one. It's my relationship interaction with others, that's tablet two. So, so you're actually dealing with the core ethical thrust of why God saves us. And you see it in an interesting passage in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 3, 10 to 14, where uh, a passage unique to Luke, in which John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, okay? As the forerunner, he's preparing a people for the coming of the Lord. And so when he, when he exhorts them in 3.8 to say, make 
fruit worthy of repentance, three different groups ask, what should we do? Okay. And the verb for make fruit and the verb for what shall we do is the same in Greek. Okay. So, so do fruit worthy of repentance. Okay. So what should we do? And the first answer is the person who has need, you give a tunic. Okay, to the tax collector, you know, it's not take advantage of your tax collection. If it's a soldier, it's not to take advantage of the power that you have as a soldier representing the state. And in every one of those answers, God isn't even explicitly mentioned. It all has to do with how I'm dealing with someone else. Well, if I think about my relationship with God and I go, what relationship does repentance have to deal with? Most people will go, your relationship to God, which would be correct. But the outworking of that repentance expresses itself in how I'm interacting with others and connects me. And it puts me in that ethical triangle that now I have to, uh, I'm being asked to close the loop. I've, it's, I've heard a lot, you know, people, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing, that, that Jesus is very hard. His teaching, his ethics are very hard. Um, what, what would you say to that? They're hard to do. It's easy to understand. Um, we're to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. That's easy to understand. As long as you understand and appreciate the fact that the neighbor is anybody. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can't no, no short changing like the lawyer tried to do. So who's my neighbor, Lord? And he tells the terrible parable of the good Samaritan to show it's the wrong question. The wrong question isn't who's is my neighbor. The right, right question to ask, or the right exhortation to have is be a neighbor. Um, and then in the midst of doing that, um, you understand that you're also called to love your enemies. Okay, that's not easy. Okay, but that's what we're told. It's easy. I can get that concept. I understand. I understand what those words mean. Okay, it's, it's like right. someone's, someone said it's some... a whole other <laughs> ball of wax. But Jesus said it was pretty important because if you only love those who love you, that's no better than what anyone else is doing. And Christianity is designed to be distinctive. And so, um, so, so it's. It's easy to grasp. It's just hard to do. And then we build all these reasons why not to do it. Uh, you know, we create excuse. Well, I can treat believers this way, but not unbelievers. Okay. Well, read Galatians 6.10. Do good to all people, especially those of the faith. Mm -hmm. That isn't saying to you, I treat believers one way and I treat everybody else differently. No, I treat everyone the same, but it should certainly treat believers this way. This is why I think what you've said on the new covenant is very important because sometimes we can justify um, perhaps getting out of these hard sayings, which we actually find in the epistles, because they're occurring prior to the cross. But we've, we forget um, that these gospel writers are writing for people after the cross, and they're also writing with the new covenant in mind. Exactly right. And, 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 and the whole point, the point is to take you to the place that the law was designed to take you to in the beginning, but it couldn't because it was external. So once you realize, you know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, look, I didn't come to change any of the law. Now, he's not talking, he's not talking so much about the three, 613 traditional stipulations of the Mosaic law. He's talking about what the law was designed to produce among God's people. And the kind of people the law was designed to produce. That's what he's talking about. Can I just get you to clarify that? Because I have a feeling that some people will hear that in a different way. You talked about doing what the law was designed to do in the beginning. What so my point, my point here is, um, 
if you think about the law, you can think about the law in two ways. You can think about the law as stipulations, or you can think about the laws as moving people towards the promise. Okay. The promise was rooted in the idea that people have lost their way. They're fallen. The world's broken. It needs to be put back together. And we need to figure out how to live with one another in line with the creation mandate. And the creation mandate was men and women were created to manage the garden well and to do it in harmony with one another and healthy collaboration with one another. That's the call of life. Okay. How do we live together in healthy collaboration in a way that, that maintains the place where God has us and honors people in our relationships with one another? That's the, that's the call of the creation and what it means to be given the judgment to live out of the image of God. And that's where the, the promise Lord is, is designed. Us. Yeah. The promise is designed to restore that. And the laws were a way of kind of working your way there. Okay. So the laws weren't the end, they were a means. And the back to the progression idea you mentioned earlier, and they were pushing us in the direction of the promise. Um, and then the promise came. And when the promise came with the internal enablement, all of a sudden, some of those stipulations as they were no longer operated as they had, okay? And something else was put in its place. And that was this internal um, ethical commitment to God and to fellow people made in the image of God, who I'm called to love, and that's what the community of God is supposed to be. And so that's that's how that works. And that was the design of the law all the time, to create a stable community that reflected the will and ways of God. Yeah. I've got some questions here from listeners. Um, I've got, and I'll just, um, there's three of them. Okay. The first one is, um, it's an Old Testament question. How much of Israel slash the Old Testament um, should we, and slash the first century context, how much of that should we ideally bring in each sermon from the Gospels? If a sermon went for 30 minutes, should we bring about five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes? And then um, he goes on to say, I found Old Testament commentary and context bring so much light to the text, but that can make gospels that can make the gospel seem inaccessible to the average reader who won't do all of that uh, and can sound elitist. I think more important than the amount of time you give to the Old Testament is how you frame the Old Testament connection that you're bringing. And so if you'll frame the Old Testament connection you're given, you can do it in 45 seconds and be very, very effective. You can make the point, as we've tried to suggest, that there are certain things that Jesus is teaching that connects with God is always what God has always asked of his people and how he's asked them to do it. I mean, Jesus has great examples in the midst of some of his controversies where he makes an appeal to Old Testament events or Old Testament teachings that apply to the situation in which Jesus found himself. So, for example, on the plucking grain um, uh, controversy, you know, he's got the example of David and the showbread. He's got the example of priests in the temple serving on the Sabbath day. He's got the example of the prophetic word of I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Those are each toe dips into the Old Testament. Only for them, it wasn't toe dips in the Old Testament. For them, it was toe dips into the scripture. That was all they had. And, and in the midst of that, that illumines the direction 
of the passage and helps you to see what it's getting after. And you, I, I just did that in 45 seconds, maybe 60 seconds at the most. Um, I think you can, I, I, I think you can blitz into the text and come back out to where you are. So it doesn't overwhelm the message, which is another thing you always have to keep your eye on when you're preaching. And a big thing is just sometimes making people aware that there is the connection. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question. I've heard some say the Sermon on the Mount was the catechism of the early church and therefore the most vital part of Jesus' teaching and therefore should receive a huge amount of attention in our preaching and teaching schedules. What are your thoughts? Um, it is one ele- It is a central element of one of the most central things that Jesus is doing, uh, which is to t- talk about the ethics of the people of God. Uh, so in that sense, yes, it's very, very important. I hate rankings, however. It's all important. Um, what Jesus teaches on eschatology is important. What Jesus teaches about money is important. What Jesus teaches about, but there are certain principles at the core that that material is dealing with, that if you have those in place, then when you hit particular topics, you're helped. And so from that sense, it's central and vital and important, but I just would avoid, I would avoid, I would avoid saying, you know, it comes first. It certainly comes early and it comes often. Okay. Whether it comes first or not may depend on what it is that you're talking about. And the content isn't, the Sermon on the Mount isn't exhaustive. No. Again, you're dealing with principles that orient you to life that are, and the sermon has illustrations of those principles within it. You get a grasp of where that's taking you. You're in good shape. In fact, Luke did this. What Luke did with the Sermon on the Mount, which had many pieces to it, is he boiled it down and he boiled it down to love your enemy. Um, that was the most important thing coming out of the sermon, that your love is to be distinctive and that when you love your enemy, you're actually mirroring how God takes care of the unrighteous. You're showing yourself to be a son of God, a son or a daughter of God. You are, you are, you are mimicking the character of God in the world and you're showing what God's character is like because we all got saved when our backs were turned to God. God loved us when we were his enemies and brought us to himself, and we're never supposed to forget where we came from. Mm, yeah, that's good. Um, and the other thing, too, is, of course, you've got, you, you can summarize in, in many ways Jesus's ethics in terms of uh, deny yourself, take up your cross. And as you say, the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is merely illustrations of that, but it's not limited to the sermon. No, but the, the, probably the, the byline there, the principle there is you serve like crazy. Mm. Um, you know, you're constantly put in a position of so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a as a ransom for many. So all this talk that we sometimes see in the church about what my rights are, et cetera, that's Western and that's worldly. Um, uh, yes, I have certain rights and certain honor and dignity as a human being. And yes, I should have certain freedoms when I operate societally. Don't overread what I'm saying. But in the end, the question a Christian is supposed to ask is, how do I best serve people around me? Mm. Okay, here's another question. Oh, actually, before I go to that question, um, I was just reminded, any advice for someone who um, perhaps wants to preach one of the Gospels, any advice on setting up a preaching calendar, you know, in terms of length, uh, in terms, you know, should we just work through uh 
a chapter at a time, paragraph at a time, or is there no right or wrong way to do it? No, I, I, I don't set rules on that because it depends on how you're doing and, and different framings of the material produce different results. So, you know, if I, I, I could theoretically, I could theoretically preach Luke in a five-week series based on the major units of Luke. That would do one thing. Or I could preach Luke a pericope at a time. Okay, I've just come through filming for Zondervan uh, in a digital form, the NIV application commentary, and that was 82 units. Okay, now that's a long time. That's a year and a half to be committed to it. Uh, but I'm going basically a unit at a time. And that's just an arbitrary division in some ways. I mean, there were places, even when I was doing it, I'd go, why did I divide that that way? I could see another division working here, that kind of thing. And, this, and the frame that you pick frames what you talk about. Okay, that's one of the beauties of narrative is that it, it works at so many different levels simultaneously that whether you zero in or take a larger view, that's going to determine what pops to the surface and what you are going to highlight given the time that you're dealing with. I, so I think the challenge is deciding what kind of a series do you want. You, you can even think about, I'm going to, we've done this sometimes at our church where we've done a unit of the gospel and then we've gone, gone somewhere else and then we've come back to it later just to introduce the variety of what a preaching calendar probably often ought to look like, that kind of thing. Because if you stay in the gospel um, only and you decide to do it in some detail, okay, you're there for a long time, okay, and you're going to be find yourself wrestling with, am I repeating myself? Um, because themes recur. Whereas if you break it up with other things, um, you might lose some of that sense of sameness. And you might actually, because you've been somewhere else in the Bible, help yourself with correlation to see some things that you might not otherwise see. Mm. Might even be a good opportunity to perhaps go back into the Old Testament and and, and bring out some of those Exactly. We, we, we did something this summer that we've never done at our church before that has really gone well. We took a summer break. We tired the series, a comfort, comfort in chaos, comforted in the midst of chaos. And the decision that we made is, is, you know, summers are a time when people kind of kick back and kind of catch their breath in the midst of a hectic year. And so we're toying with the idea of going to the Psalter every summer um, just, to, um, just to do the spiritual refresh that the Psalms tend to generate um, and, 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 then, and then use that as bridges and reminders as we move into the other topics that we'll cover through the rest of the year. We haven't made that decision yet, but we certainly, it certainly surfaced on our radar in part because of the way people embrace the Psalms. And secondly, because there are so many of them, you know, there's no way to do, I mean, you talk about doing a series on synoptic gospels, imagine a series <laughs> on the Psalms. Mm. And, uh, and that's a good way to keep them in the mix. Mm. Psalm 119 would keep you there for a while. Exactly right. Okay, here's another question. One of the most difficult passages I've tried preaching on is Matthew 10. I've heard some Christians use passages like this to talk about what we should be doing. So I guess focus on application. But it's tricky because of the redemptive historical movement it's situated in. That is, it is prior to the cross, the resurrection, the Great Commission, the pouring out of the Spirit. What is the take-home message of a passage like this? For modern day Christians, how should we preach it? 
Okay, so let me start with correlation first. One of the things that happens with some of the things that are talked about in that passage is they get um, modified in light of the being on the other end of the cross at the Lord's at the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. Okay, so that's one thing to notice. Uh, I would say that the emphasis is uh, one of the emphases certainly is on the value of teams. It comes in a context in which it's. It's a response to the prayer that the Lord send out workers into the harvest, that kind of thing. So there are certain things that are there that are really important. There's another section, I think it's in that passage, that talks about, it certainly is in the Lucan equivalent of that passage, uh, that talks about uh, the sense of uh, appreciation that we ought to have for what the gospel is, that John is the greatest born of woman, but the one who is uh, less than he is greater than kings of God, or a variation of it is kings and prophets long to see what you are seeing and uh, um, and didn't see it, but you're now participating. The one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest one of the old era. Those ideas are surrounding that mission. They may not be in that passage, but they're surrounding that mission. And so I think those elements are important. I think you're wrestling with the ability you know, sometimes the, there's a sense of urgency in that mission uh, that may or may not universally apply in the sense that Jesus was trying to send people out and, and disperse across Israel to get the message of the kingdom out. So if a place didn't receive you, you washed the dust from your feet and moved on. Uh, I'm not sure that principle necessarily applies universally today. You know, there's something to be said for for digging in and ministering, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it takes discernment, uh, but I do think the passage has a lot to offer us, and particularly, again, these key themes that are orienters, if I can say it that way, uh, that are ministry kind of location points are are really, really important in these texts, kinds of mm-hmm. texts. That's helpful, and, and as you say, it's important to pay attention to the trajectory, I guess you could say, of where the New Testament is going, because you know th- some things get altered, you, as you said, in light of the Lord's Supper. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this has been great. Thank you. Just one more question: In all your years in the Gospels, is there one thing that continues to impress you? Yeah, it's they're still worth studying. You know, I have given. Uh, you know, I, I, this year I'm completing my 40th year teaching at Dallas Seminary, and I'm in my, what would it be, 82, something, a 47th year, I guess, as a Christian. Um, so first 18, 19, 20 years of my life were on the other end of the cross. Um, and uh, it, they're still worth studying. There's still stuff I'm seeing. I mean, the depth of what is there, you know, and I've spent, I've spent a significant amount of that time, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and there's still new stuff. I think of um, Paul in Second Corinthians three eighteen. You know, he talks about um, the more we behold the glory of Christ, the more we are transformed into His image. I can't think. In some ways, I can't think of um, a better part of the Bible than to spend your time in for forty years than the Gospels. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to know Jesus. <laughs> 
Well, Daryl, thank you very much. This has been wonderful. Um, and I know that our listeners are going to really benefit from it. So thank you. Is there anything, um, i just reminded that you do have a podcast yourself. Perhaps you want to talk just a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I have a podcast called The Table. And if you want to go there and subscribe, you can go to voice.dts.edu slash table podcast. Comes out weekly. If you subscribe every Tuesday, you'll get a new episode. And we're getting ready to expand our offerings in different directions beyond the podcast out of the center. But if you're if you're subscribing to the center and being driven to the site, you're going to be very aware of all the stuff that we're doing that that's going to be new that's coming. But um, the Table Podcast is a cultural engagement podcast. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and we run in all kinds of directions. We've done LBGDQ stuff. We've done justice stuff. We've done apologetics. We've done systematic theology. We've done a study of of religions, particularly Eastern religions. I mean, it's a whole variety of stuff. We've almost have 400 hours of material across 10 years. Yeah, it's a fantastic resource. What are you working on at the moment in terms of writing? Um, I'm, I'm toying with a book on race, um, editing a book on race with a diverse uh, editorial committee because I'm really convinced that the church is uh, repeating past mistakes. And uh, it makes me nervous. And so um, God has been talking about justice since the prophets. And now I'm going to use a metaphor that works in the United States. I don't know if it works in Australia and New Zealand. Part of it will. But Isaiah was writing long before there was Karl Marx in red and blue states. Hmm. Uh, and so, um, so this is something that God has spoken about, cares about. It's something we're supposed to be paying attention to. It's one of those corporate dimensions that leads into and reflects the reconciliation that's supposed to come as a result of the cross. And so I'm thinking about writing in that area. It amazes me that this is such a controversial topic among Christians. Yes, I agree. And, 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 it's, and it's for the factor of those lenses that I was talking about earlier. Position, power, okay, uh, perception, and peer pressure. Mm. Well, that's a good place to end it. Thank you very much, Daryl. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for listening to The Preacher Podcast. If you've got a question or topic you'd like answered on a podcast, then please email alan at preachit.nz. If you'd like to know more about Preachit and the training we offer, go to www.preachit.nz or check out our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Ruffian Beats with music by Samuel James. Catch you next time on the Preacher Podcast where we want to serve those who want to preach better.